Gresham College presents A Giant Leap by Frank Close, OBE, Gresham Professor of Astronomy. galaxies. 
discovered was that the galaxies are rushing away from each other. And that is what gave rise to the idea that the universe as a whole was expanding. Now, from the speed that they're rushing away, you can imagine playing the film backwards in time. So in the past, they must have been much closer than they are now. In fact, if you play the film back about 10 to 15 billion years, the universe then was a very compact, incredibly dense, incredibly hot ball. And it's the explosion from that that we refer to as the Big Bang <laughs> that has led to us being here today to talk about these things. So, I sort of casually say the universe is 15 billion years old. And that's a long time, it's even longer than Gresham College. <laughs> How do you feel for how old that is? Can I sort of take you back and give you an idea of the time scales? Well, to make a little bit of contact with it and to relax everybody, let's all take a deep breath and hold it a moment and feel the oxygen atoms in your lungs. Right, now you've just breathed in oxygen atoms that are five billion years old. They're as old as the Earth. Just pinch yourself a second. The carbon atoms that are making your skin and bones and everything are, in fact, even older than the Earth. They and everything were formed in stars that died out before our Earth began. And in a later talk, I'll tell you about the way the elements are formed and how they got here and so forth. So, we, everything, actually were created in stars that have died away long ago. So, if you're romantic, you can think of it as a stardust, or if you're less romantic, Nuclear waste products because that is. <laughs> One other thing that I will do is to relax myself and have a drink of water. Now, water is H2O, that's the chemical formula. The O refers to oxygen, the same stuff that we breathe. The H refers to hydrogen. Now, hydrogen is the simplest element of all, and it was the first element made in the universe. It ended up in stars and cooked the heavier elements like oxygen and carbon that are today here on Earth. Hydrogen isn't very common around here, except that it's trapped in things like water, but it's the commonest element of all in the universe at large. And how hydrogen came to be, we will talk about that in a, in a later talk. But what I wanted to do was to give you a feeling for what 15 billion years is, and to do that, to draw an analogy with time as we now know it. Suppose that each billion years corresponds to an hour real time. And that now will be at 2 o'clock. So in that case, if you do your maths, you'll discover that if now is at 2 o'clock, the Big Bang happened at 11 o'clock last night. So if you can remember 11 o'clock last night and think of the Big Bang happening there, and think what has happened in the meantime. So you went to sleep, you woke up, you had coffee. 9 o'clock this morning, it was only 9 o'clock this morning when the sun appears on the scene. So all of last night, nothing was happening. It's around 10 o'clock this morning that the Earth arrives. You have more coffee and you come to the talk. It's now about 1 o'clock. It'll be another half an hour before the oldest fossils appear on the scene. It'll only be 30 seconds before the end of the talk when the first humanoids appear on the scene. And what this weird symbol here is, it'll be the blink of an eye before 2 o'clock when Russian College appears on the scene. <laughs> That's 400 years. And then 2 o'clock at the end will be now. So that gives you an idea of how long it has been. So just think back today, 11 o'clock last night, 
all through the night, through the breakfast time, it's only then the sun appears. And it's only in the last few seconds of the talk that anything like us will appear on the scene. So that's how old the universe is. Well, I refer to now, and uh, now is a bit of a bizarre thing because I'm going to try to take you back to the Big Bang. And what I'd hoped to do at this point was to play you a piece of a record, which a good friend of mine I see hovering in the doorway, Mr. Storm Torgerson was in part responsible for. Many years ago, I was on a television program he made called The Rubber Universe. And uh, I made a couple of remarks in that, which I shall now make, and these ended up on a, a CD that the Alan Parsons Project made, which, showing my age, I totally forgot to bring with you, but I'll play it another time. But I'll read you the critical bit. Uh, the, it was like this, this beautiful, ethereal, electronic music in the background. You can imagine it, the sort of stuff you always hear on space theme. And then my voice is saying, when you look out into the night sky, you see the stars far away. You're seeing them because of light that's travelled from them to you. But it takes time for light to travel from there to here. So what we might be doing is looking at the stars as they are in the past. In fact, you're looking at the moon about one second ago. The sun, it takes about eight minutes for light to get from the sun to here. You look at the stars in the night sky, you're looking back thousands of years. It's taken thousands of years for the light to have got from them to us. But then I said, imagine we're looking at one of those stars. We're seeing it across 6,000 years of space and time. So we're seeing that star as it was 6,000 years ago. Now imagine that there's an alien out there on that star who's looking back at us. That alien will be seeing us as we were 6,000 years ago. Which of those two is now? <laughs> <laughs> and so what this actually does is show that space and time are very intimately linked together. And the idea of now is not so obvious as it might appear. And so we can indeed go and look back in time by going and looking out in the universe. And so that's what I wanted to do, is to show you an idea of uh, what you see. So here is a rather complicated picture. This is the Earth down the bottom here. You can look with your eyes out into the night sky and you will see stars that are, as we say, about 10,000 to 100,000 light years away. They're that distant. It's taken that amount of time to get here. You are looking at 100,000 years. With a small telescope or pair of binoculars, you can probably see the Andromeda Nebula. At least you can if you don't live in London. It's increasingly difficult Nonetheless, it's there. And looking back at the order of a million years. Now, with the Hubble Space Telescope, you can look far, far out of the universe, almost back to the start of time itself. I say almost. You're looking back billions of years, but you can't look into the Big Bang. And the reason why is really the reason why I talk is this. What I'm showing here is like an instant history of the universe. This is now, and this is a funny thermometer with some units on that we scientists use, but I don't know what they are. This is the critical thing. Outer space, out there, is very, very cold. It's about three degrees above absolute zero. That's minus 270 degrees centigrade. And that's 
temperature in outer space now. Now, we here on Earth are in a local hotspot because the sun is shining, it's heat transmitted across space, warmed up the atmosphere, so the sort of ambient temperature around here is about 300 degrees absolutely. The sun, the surface of the sun, is several thousands of degrees, but the heart of the sun, where nuclear fusion reactions are taking place to power it, is about 10 million degrees. That is almost as hot as it gets in the universe nowadays. But the Big Bang was much, much hotter than that. And what I've got down the side here is in the history of the universe, with sort of horrible beasties at the top there, uh, is, so today, now, whatever that means, is very, very cold. 300,000 years after the Big Bang, the whole universe was about 10,000 degrees. A hundred seconds, or about three minutes, two or three minutes after the Big Bang, the whole universe was hotter than the sun is today. Now, you can't look into the sun, it's just too bright. Similarly, you can't look into the Big Bang, it's too bright. There are ways, however, of looking into the sun, and I'll tell you about those in some later talks. And those are the ways we look into the Big Bang. It's to use these little particles, as ways of recreating these sort of extreme temperatures and that's why I spoke here, even earlier universe, LEP is a big accelerator in Geneva, that I'm going to tell you about, because it's just coming to the end of its life, and some of the wonderful things that it has shown us. So, how is it that we go and uh, look at these things? Well, if you want to know what things are made of, there's three ways you can go about it. You can look at them, you can smash them apart, or you can heat them up. Now, all of these have been used in science over hundreds of years. This is the most exciting one. We know how to smash things apart, and that's indeed what we part physicists do. We take pieces of atoms and smash them into each other. What we're actually doing is, in those collisions, making incredible amounts of energy, or temperature, if you like, making the sort of conditions that the universe was like, not now, but within about a billionth of a second, after the Big Bang. And that is the sort of journey that we're going to go and take. So to help you begin that journey to matter, what I really want to do is to go back about a hundred years. Because the, the first step into discovering what matter, us, are made of, was made in 1897 by J.J. Thompson in Cambridge, when he discovered the electron. The electron is the common particle of everything. And it carries electricity through wires so we can get charged for using it. He discovered it. This is an exact replica of the tube in which Thompson discovered the electron in 1897. It actually might be familiar to you in a modern guise. If I turn it this away, I tell you that's the front of a television screen and this is the back of the television set. What he was actually doing was electric current was coming into the back of this little tube. All the air had been taken out of the tube, and this little filament at the back got very hot. And, as we now know, electrons boiled off from that filament and came along the tube and hit the screen at the front. That is actually today the basic idea of a TV. When you're putting the power in the back end, electrons come off the back, they shoot and hit the screen at the front. Now, why did it make sense when they 
how to make a picture is because there's electric and magnetic fields that are being applied inside the TV to steer the beams around. And that is the basic idea that Thompson used in 1897. He was trying to understand what electric current actually was. But I remember when I was a kid, I bought a little book in a job sale at school for a penny. This is a D, not a P, the old book. And it was a Victorian book with the pompous title, The Reason Why in Science, it said. And one of the questions, this was back in 1895, it said, what is electricity? And the answer was, electricity is an imponderable fluid, the like of which is not known to man. <laughs> so two years later, Thompson found the answer. Electricity is the flow of little particles, which we call electrons, common to all atoms. And he discovered it by using this little tube. Now, if you like, on another occasion of the day, I'll tell you more about this tube. What I want you to know from it is how small it is. This is pretty much all you need to discover the electron, a fundamental particle of matter, in 1897. Once you discovered it, you can put it to use. You can make television sets, for example, or you can make electron microscopes and go and look with them at the very small scale structure of matter. Or you can use electrons to do other wonderful things. And that is now what I want to come to, because immediately you discovered the electron, you discovered parallel. Electrons carry electricity. They're negatively charged particles. And they exist in everything. Every atomic element has got electrons inside. You are made of elements that have got electrons inside. Take a deep breath again. Yep. You've just breathed in a million, 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 million oxygen atoms, each of which has got several electrons in it. So you've just breathed in a huge amount of negative electricity. And yet nobody's hair still there. <laughs> now you, you see these party tricks at the open days where you put somebody on a, an insulated plate and you charge it up and then their hair sort of sticks out like this because of electrostatic repulsion. I mean, why mine didn't stand an Some people here got this, but the other people here whose hair could have still an end and it didn't. Now it's a surprise that it didn't because you breathed in so much negative electric charge. That immediately tells you that inside all of those atoms there must also be some positive electric charge, which exactly balances the negative, which is itself a miracle, we'll talk about on another occasion. But this is the sort of uh, cartoon image of the atom as we've known it for 80 years, and it is this that the electron that Thompson discovered in that little tube in 1897 carrier of negative electric charge is one of the basic building blocks of matter. We believe that there is nothing smaller than it. If there is, we have no idea of it yet. If you like, it's analogous to one of the basic letters of the native alphabet. And electrons exist in the outer reaches of the atmosphere. The positive charge that stops your hair standing up, the balance of it, lives in the middle atomic nucleus. And the story about that and how it was discovered, I'll tell you another time. This positive charge in the nucleus exists on particles called protons and neutrons. And these in turn are made of smaller bits called quarks. Now we've only known the quarks for about 30 years. But that is, in a nutshell, what everything is made of. Negatively charged electrons, fundamental particles whirling around on the outside of atoms, discovered by Thompson in this little tube in 1897. And at the heart 
the atomic nucleus, our little quarks, also fundamental basic building blocks of everything, which were discovered around 1970 in a two mile long version of this tube. I'll tell you a story about that on another occasion. But that is indeed the makeup of you, me, all matter. Ultimately, these fundamental particles, electrons and quarks. Why it's like that, we can talk about. But that is how it is. Now, once you've got these electrons, you start doing things with them. And that is what we do at CERN. And this is a sort of aerial picture of CERN taken at the time of year that we want to say it's an interesting place to go and work at. <laughs> uh, here is a small accelerator that was what CERN sitting off many years ago. Um, these in the background are gravity research stations. Now, this aerial picture of CERN was taken many years ago, that is just a small bit of what CERN really is today. There's 20 nations of Europe that combine together to work at CERN. It's the largest particle accelerator laboratory in the whole of the world. And what we are able to do there now is to use these electrons that Thompson discovered and also antimatter version of electrons called positrons. Now, why we do that, we'll talk about, and I'll tell you much more about antimatter in the next couple of talks. But why is it we do that? What is it we're trying to do with this? Well, first of all, let me show you some pictures to give you an idea of the scale of what's going on there. So this is an aerial view looking in the opposite direction of the previous picture. The little bit of the laboratory that we saw a moment ago was there, but here you see a huge circle which shows the outline of this big 27 kilometer long accelerator called LEP. Now you can get the idea of the scale of the thing, you can see the Geneva International Airport runway in the foreground. This dotted line here is the French-Swiss border. These clouds are the Jura Mountains in the background, from the, the Alps we saw a moment ago in the direction. But this circle here is where we have got this huge accelerator in which we take electrons and swing them around in one direction. 11,000 times a second, they go around that 27 kilometers to the moon so fast. And then the antimatter form of electrons, called positrons, swing around the same circle in the other direction. And then you bring them into collision. Bang! Now, are you the generation that watches Star Trek or your kids watch Star Trek? We all know that Star Trek is Star Trek Enterprise is powered by antimatter. The critical thing is that when matter and antimatter meet, they annihilate. <coughs> and actually that isn't science fiction, that's true. When electrons and positrons, their antimatter version, meet, they annihilate. So you bring them together, bang, and the annihilation produces a little flash of energy. For a very brief moment small volume, smaller than an atom, you've created the sort of concentration of energy that was what the whole universe was like within a billionth of a second after the real Big Bang. So you're making mini versions of the Big Bang, if you like, and then you look to see what happens. So this, as I said, is an outline of the area there. Um, I've given this talk many places, and you always want to show people the sort of geography. I realised a year ago I was giving this talk actually in Geneva at CERN to a load of people, and there I was telling them what they already knew of me. This is Geneva, this is what it looks like, so on and so forth. 
At the end of it, somebody said, is that British? They said, I've lived here for 20 years and I've never noticed a circle on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and this was because, in fact, if you don't draw accelerators in people's backyards, um, the accelerator is underground, and in many ways you can think of it as similar to the circle line here, except <laughs> the particles go faster and more. <laughs> I mean, it's a similar sort of length. Uh, the cross-section of the tunnel, that you can see, is similar to that. See these two people standing here giving an idea of the scale. The things that speed the particles, these magnets in these big boxes here, going all the way around 27 kilometers. Now, I mean, how do you accelerate a particle? It's like a, like a battery. Um, if you've got a one volt battery, an electron boils off on one side and is attracted across to the positive terminal. And in doing so, it gains an energy. It speeds up. And if we say, in fact, what they have to that energy is, it's so trifling small by that point, <coughs> so we call it one electron volt, meaning the energy that a single electron gets when you put it in a one volt accelerator. And in a sense, all you have to do is put more and more of those batteries next to each other, and you can make it have more and more energy, roughly speaking. Now, if you did that, if you wanted to speed those electrons up to the energies that we're using here, you would have to build a series of batteries over 100 miles. And that isn't easy, politically. <laughs> so what you do is you also use magnets, because magnets will steer the beams around corners. And that way, by having electric fields that speed them up, the magnets that bend them around, you can set them all the way around the circle, round, round, around, around, around. And then the positrons the other way around, 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 and smash them into each other. So the real action is taking place inside the set of these magnets where there's a little tube about that big in cross-section and all of the air has been taken out of that. There's a better vacuum in that tube than you find in outer space. Now you might ask, why bother? Any ideas? I've learned from teaching how to keep the audience away and ask them questions. Okay, is this, the, the electrons are going around, fine, you've got positrons, antimatter version of electrons going around as well. And if they bump into a single atom of air along the way, they're destroyed straight away. And you don't want that to happen. You want to keep them until they hit their nemesis head on. Electrons and positrons colliding head on. Then you've achieved what you want to do. You've made a mini version of the Big Bang, and you can see what happens next. And so what you do, at those, there are four places around the ring where you've got these uh, collisions taking place. The beams cross at those points, they get apart the rest of the time. And at those places, you build a special camera, dramatically called a detector. And uh, this is an end view of one of these things. Down the bottom here, part of the by the shadow, are some people standing. So you can see the scale of a human is about one and a half times the length of that pen. So that's the end view of one of these detectors. When the machine is working, the electrons would come shooting in from this direction, and the positrons would come shooting into the back from the other direction. And in the middle, they would meet and annihilate each other. To show you uh, a little sort of cartoon of what is happening is the uh, so this is now the side view. It's a cylindrical thing. What you saw a moment ago was that end head on. So the electrons are coming in from one end, the positrons coming in from the other end. They hit each other and annihilate in the middle, create a mini version of the Big Bang, 
And then out of that appears particles of matter and antimatter, just like they did in the real Big Bang. And so what this detected is a very sophisticated set of electronics that detects the appearance of these basic particles, the quarks, electrons, and other things. And from that, we begin to build up an understanding of how matter was actually made in the real universe. And that sort of screensaver thing that I had on here when you came in was showing you some of the, the trails as recorded in computers as these particles came shooting out from that mini version of the Big Bang. So what I wanted to do for a brief moment is just to go back to the, uh, the picture I showed you to make you realize that what we're talking about here. A hundred years ago, Thompson has discovered the electron using this little tube. Today, we are using those electrons, speeding them around 27-kilometer racetracks, annihilating them against antimatter version of electrons, and recording the results. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk